0: Great morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Thank God for Monday. I'm Brother Greg Cellini, the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn and Seton Hall University, Class of 1985. My great pleasure to be back with you once again today. The purpose of Thank God for Monday is to inspire you, our audience, to take personal responsibility for your professional satisfaction. We want to provide you hope, healing, and peace in these unprecedented, turbulent, uncertain times, motivate you to search deep inside yourself in the quest for fulfillment. Listeners, it's really up to you as to how you utilize the information we provide today. Take full accountability for the decisions you make and the resulting outcomes. And one of the goals of our show, thank God for Monday, is to introduce role models, role models of people who take very bold steps in their work lives. And as such, we are honored today to have with us a most special guest. His name is Dr. Christopher Gilbert. Chris is a senior international ethics consultant and popular keynote speaker. He's also the author of multiple books. His latest book is entitled The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time. Great morning, and welcome to Thank God for Monday, Chris.
1: Hey, good morning to you, Gregory. Thank you so much. It's a real privilege.
0: Ah, uh, The honor is all ours, certainly. Please share with the listeners from what city and state you might be speaking from today, please.
1: Absolutely. Proud to say that we're just south of uh, Seattle in Washington State, the other Washington, uh, in a small community called Gig Harbor, which is about uh, 25 miles south of the city.
0: Thanks for getting up extra early to be here with us today. We've only got about 30 minutes, so we really want to jump right into the deep end of the pool and talk about this great book, The Noble Edge. But just before doing that, Can you familiarize us, please? Kindly share with us a little bit about yourself and in particular about what or maybe even who inspired you to pursue this great path and career which you've done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not going to start off from the birth in the hospital way back in Sacramento, California. (laughs) But literally, uh, once I uh, got done with high school, I went to UC Davis out of the San Francisco area, uh, transferred up to uh, University of Washington. So there's some academic background got my bachelor's in geology, believe it or not. So that's where I started. Wow. Got tired of freezing various appendages off in minus 120 degree wind chill weather on the North Slope looking for gravel and construction material up there. Decided there had to be a wetter way, went and got my MBA, uh, got into consulting, actually got a, a, a professorship at uh, the Evergreen State College, which is here in Washington State, uh, which led me to uh, uh, leave that position and start a business. We. together a group of three or four of us that got some venture capital uh, starting a business called cravings which was an expanded menu food delivery business uh, in a small operation in bellingham and corporate offices in seattle and then the story back to this uh, book and my feeling about ethics uh, we actually had a very large company come in steal our idea and start their own version of the exact same business out in eden prairie minnesota Oh, uh, we had to lay off 35 very loyal employees, we lost the business and we weren't able to go any further than that. But I think that's what planted the seed for me to think about because I'd been teaching I'd been a professor in the business uh, department at colleges but really began to uh, teach me uh, about thinking about the way we make choices, especially at that time in business differently. And so I think that really in planting the seed, I went back into teaching. I was at Tacoma College, University of Washington, about four or five different universities around the world as a visiting professor. And I started to teach a theme of social responsibility and ethics, I think before it was known as social responsibility anyway, and realized that uh, we needed a better way of having this conversation, not only in the academic setting, uh, but also out in the world. And I think that's what positive, pushed me to uh, create books that would allow us to have a better conversation, an accessible and easy conversation uh, about what ethics are and making good choices.
0: We are so blessed to have you, Chris, someone of your ilk on Thank God for Monday this morning. Let's jump right into the deep end of the pool. This title really drew me the noble edge. But help us out, please. What is the noble edge?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, I think probably people are very familiar with the competitive edge uh, or the leading edge or the cutting edge. Um, Those are those rarefied spaces where new ideas or new technologies or new ways of practicing or acting uh, create remarkable new opportunities um, and turn out in some cases to be better than the old way that we were thinking about or trying to do something in the world. The noble edge is really about an advance in our character. So it's really living into the nobility that we're born with and having the the, uh, uh, alignment between our words and our actions uh, uh, be stronger. And therefore we flourish, not only us as individuals, but as community members. So the noble edge is really achieving that place where in this case, to make it simple, the agreement of our words and our actions uh, becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And isn't that what the world really needs right now?
0: No question about that. I can think of so many situations, sadly, and I'm guilty of it sometimes myself, where I say one thing, but I do something else. And 2022, I'm really trying to make it a point to align those two uh, very much perfectly, no doubt about that. Now, studying accounting at Seton Hall, we were required to take a course in ethics And of course, in logic. But one of the things I never understood was the term ethics and then the term morals. Mm. Is there a difference between ethics and morals? Help us out, please, Dr. Chris. And if so, what might be that difference?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think semantically, we use these two interchangeably, and I'm not, I'm not really sure that, that that difference is very important if we understand semantically that the words are meaning the same thing. But probably the way that you can look at the difference in them is that morality are really the agreements or the rules or the guidelines that we've agreed to um, as a society, as a culture, as a group, as a family, whatever circle you want to make this, uh, large or small. Um, th- so the morals are really the, 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 way that, the things that we've agreed to. The ethics are the ways that we act. Of course, they're partly studying these morals, but they're the ways we act. So you can think about it this way: the morals are in the talking, and the ethics are in the walking. That's probably the easiest way to think about the distinction between the two.
0: Oh, that is a wonderful, wonderful clarification. Thank you for that. Now, there are some people who think ethics really are not black; they're not white; they're really gray. Is it fair to say? all ethics are really gray, or would you push back on
1: that? I would push back on that. In fact, I think that's one of the difficulties we had now, um, or we have now in society, both ours and others. Um, I think that uh, probably the best way to think about this is that ethics are really there to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And folks that are uh, thinking about them as gray or philosophical, really hard to see, actually create a greater problem for themselves making a right or a wrong decision. Um, I think we've somehow put ethics under the purview of the great thinkers or the uh, academic arena or the great leaders or the great religious leaders. They somehow have a different understanding about ethics than we do, so they might make better decisions. And of course, as we see in the newspapers or on social media all the time, that's absolutely not the case. In fact, we probably know more about their foibles because they're in the highlight more than we are. Um, And we see that that doesn't make a difference. So someone who's using that phrase, ethics are gray. It's kind of like using the phrase, I'm sort of pregnant, or I sort of voted, (laughs) or I'm sort of human, Uh, when in fact, of course, you are, or you aren't, you did, or you didn't, um, and and ethics are really there to tell us uh, what is right and what is wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, the situation around us in whatever choice we're trying to make and trying to be ethical may be very, very difficult to see. It may be foggy to see. But the ethics are really there to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And maybe the more effective way of thinking about ethics uh, rather than rules or policies and procedures is really to think of rails on the side of a bridge. So those guardrails are there. They allow us to go as fast and as quickly with others as we can to get someplace safely. And imagine crossing a bridge over uh, high water somewhere like the Golden Gate Bridge or the (laughs) Verrazano Narrows Bridge that didn't have guardrails on the side. I don't know about you, but I'd probably crawl on my hands and knees across to the other side to get the car I had over there, right? So you really understand ethics as a privilege, like those guardrails on a bridge that allow us to go together in some direction that we need to, even if our purposes are somehow a little bit different. So when I use that analogy with people, I think it, it sort of resonates a little bit better than thinking about the philosophical version of ethics, which sometimes makes it very hard for us to make the right choice.
0: What a terrific analogy. Thank you for that. And maybe this is unfair of me because now that I'm uh, 62 plus, uh, I get half price now on uh, New Jersey Metro. Well, <laughs> like one of the things I've inferred, but you're the expert here, Chris, certainly, is that as I've gotten older, the ethics in our country seem to be more and more gray. When I was younger, there seemed to be more of a distinction between what was right and what was wrong. Now it's sort of kind of blended. Is this a, an incorrect perception? Have you perceived this as well? I'm just curious what you've seen over the course of your lifetime, let's say.
1: Yeah, maybe another way to phrase this or the way that I think about it is, is, is where's our moral compass? Do we, are, is, is it off center? Are we actually headed the right direction? Or somehow has that compass got askew, the moral compass got askew? And I think the short answer to that is probably yes, but not necessarily for the reasons we might think. Uh, When I ask people about uh, ethics and poor choices, they'll often think about the the high profile examples, like I was alluding to before, where some business person or some leader or some Hollywood mogul (coughs) does something heinous and we look at it and go, oh my gosh, how could someone make those choices? But it's kind of interesting. One of the things that I noticed as I was teaching, and this is what led me to think about this conversation of ethics in a different way, was that I I saw my students having, as we had these case studies, which examine examples in business in this case, where uh, businesses or individuals in a business made terrible decisions, uh, very unethical decisions. I saw my students having what I've come to call an ethics out of body experience which is that they would look at these people that were making these choices and say to themselves out loud to us, oh, well, my gosh, I, I myself would never, of course, make a choice like that if I were out there. I can see the course here of that person was very wrong. And my course is a good course. Um, all while we're downloading illegal software, secondhand smoking, cutting people off on the freeway, uh, you know, you name it. And, and you know, fudging on taxes, fudging uh, on relationships. And there wasn't a, a, a cement or a bridge between the things that they were seeing other people do and they what they themselves might be doing. And I'm not here to judge anyone. I'll try and judge myself, but I'm not here to judge anyone. But obviously this disjoint between looking at others making bad choices, but I am I know myself, I don't make bad choices, really was the problem. And I needed to kind of enlarge people's radar screens in both my uh, academic world as students and also in the consulting and, and speaking that I was doing to sort of talk about it in very personal terms and say, you know, we all march up and down that ladder all the time. And it isn't just the big Uh, guffaws, the big uh, non-ethical or immoral tragedies that create this off of the compass. It's really the little stuff that all of us do now and then, here and there, sometimes very unwittingly, not intentionally, that I think gets us to start thinking about ethics being able to be changeable, or like you said, gray, right? So I get to make this choice now at this time, but I wouldn't make it in the future. I'll make it a different way in the future. When ethics are there to tell us, this is right, and this is wrong. And in fact, if I can diatribe here a little bit, hey. part of the research that I did to get my doctorate, when some elements of this in the book, although the book's very accessible, it's not a research book. Um, but the the uh, uh, what I found in my research was that the people who have had formal training in ethics, so you had mentioned a classroom like you were in, um, or they're in a corporate boardroom, and I'm doing the training as a consultant, whatever training they got, the formal training, they wind up actually making lower level moral choices than the people who have not received any formal training in ethics. Really? Yeah. It, it, and so it's very interesting to think about this because what's that really a, con- a condemnation of in a way? Well, it's us, the teachers. It's us, the consultants, because of the, what we're trying to teach or how we're trying to teach. Quite often, ethics is taught from a very philosophical Iffy, can't land anywhere. So here's one view, here's another view, here's another view perspective. And what's happening is we're empowering people that do get that training to walk out the door and instead of using a framework to make all their choices, because some of these frameworks are very different from one another, and we can get into that if you want, they can actually make a choice and then find the framework that says it's ethical. So the ins justifies the means. Look, so many of us will benefit, right? This is called consequentialism in the ethical world. So I can use that. Or, oh, relativism. That's where, well, it, it, it's good for them over there, but not good for us here. Uh, so uh, we'll make our own choices and they'll make their own choices, but both of them are ethical because that's what we know. And you are saying, well, in that world where we can choose any framework and make a choice, that's exactly what happens. I don't think it happens wittingly. No one says, oh, I'm going to be a consequentialist today. But I, what does happen is they'll make a choice and go, oh, well, by that framework, that's that's an ethical thing to do. So the book really Aww. suggests, and I won't go much farther here, but the book really suggests another way of thinking about method, uh, uh, ethics in terms of this moral ladder and moving up the moral ladder um, instead of sort of sticking with the philosophical uh, arguments about what's ethical and what's not.
0: I couldn't help when going through this great book of yours thinking that, because I spent 30 years in the corporate world and big pharmaceuticals, Uh. wouldn't it have been wonderful if our group, let's say, I was part of the training group or so many times in part of the finance group, receivables, credit, cost accounting, et cetera, that we would have taken a book like this, read it as a department, and then talked about it. I don't know if that's something that you do currently, or it sounds like you said, even at the board of directors level, you're working with boards to work uh, to help try to enhance ethics and morality, etc.
1: Yeah, I wish it was happening more, not not for my own personal gratification or for monetary purposes, but I really do wish the conversation would go further. In fact, putting out the second book, my first book was "There's No Right Way to Do the Wrong Thing." Uh, the second book is really a revision of that with some updates, um, but it was really intended to create exactly what you're saying, Greg, uh, about this conversation among us about making choices, making consistent right choices, and the things that we kind of excuse ourselves now because we all rationalize choices. You know, um, No CEO in the business world ever walks into a boardroom and says, all right, all those in favor of screwing up the consumer and making a lot of money while we're doing it please raise your hands. It doesn't happen like that, right? Um, It happens just the way that we justify cutting someone off on the freeway or or downloading illegal software or a movie or something. We go, oh, well, I can justify this any number of ways. And we don't say, here, watch me be unethical. We go, oh, no, I'm going to do that. and, And here's the reason that it's okay this time to do it, right? It's the same thing you might think about when the police officer pulls you over because you've been speeding. And the police officer looks at you and what are they, you normally they'll quit they'll ask you, know, well, do you know how fast you were going? Well, I'm not going to admit the truth. Yeah, of course I knew how fast I was going, but I go, no, I, I don't know. Maybe uh, five miles, a little four miles over the speed limit I'm doing 80 or 90, right? Because I'm taking care of myself. I'm taking care of myself, right? So this justification, this rationalization actually allows us to make small poor choices, which aren't great, um, but also large poor choices, which may have a great impact on the others, that are around us or others that are not here yet and, and you know may receive the end point of that in the future. So the book is really a way to try and create a, a very simple uh, um, tool for people to use to think about the choices they've made and the choices that they'll make.
0: Now, tied into that, one of the things that's so important to us here and thank God for Monday is relationships, relationships in the workplace, because we still believe that People of the issue, everything else is just detail, certainly. But one of the things we've seen over our 15 years on the air is that more and more, it's getting more difficult for people to have authentic relationships in the workplace. Why is this happening, Chris? Help us out, please.
1: Yeah, if you want to look at this, let's say from a virtues perspective, and in fact, when we're talking about ethics, we we really are talking about the virtues that you exercise as you're trying to make the best choice because it may in fact be something you have to give up. And so in this case, it's the virtue of selflessness, right? Really all ethics are about moving from being selfish. It's about me to being selfless. Well, it's actually about everybody else I'm going to affect. Um, And I think at the heart of that is is this idea of building trust, right? We set front the agreement of your words and your actions or a relationship, whether it's a business relationship or, or a loving relationship, family or partner, um, it really is about this trust that we've built with each other. When I ask the question, what do you think the greatest human virtue is? Um, quite often, the answer is love. And it does distinguish us, perhaps, from the rest of the animal world. Um, but I would argue that while that's a very important relationship, a, a, a virtue, and that's a good answer, you might want to think about trustworthiness. Because even at the heart of love is trust. Uh, you cannot possibly have a deep loving, a true loving relationship with somebody you don't trust and if they don't trust you. So that idea of being trustworthy, um, uh, uh, trustful, really is at the heart of all of our virtues. You you name the virtue, and somewhere at the heart of it is this idea of being able to be trusted or to trust others. It's one of the reasons why I say in the book that trust is probably the foundation of our greatest personal freedoms. The more people trust me, the more I have latitude to do things because they know the outcome's gonna be a good outcome and not just necessarily about me. So I think to your question directly, relationships, when we think about relationships, professional or otherwise, it's that element of trust that really makes the difference, and truthfulness that makes the difference between relationships that are short-term and perhaps not really relationships and the relationships that are long-term and really have an impact on us, not just then, but also in the future.
0: Now, one of the things I believe you used, I know in the book, but I thought you heard before might say, was the phrase moral ladder. Talk to us, please, a little bit about this moral ladder that your book asks us to climb, Chris.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that, by the way, is the the easy tool to think about an ethical choice. In fact, this ladder, really, whether you've known about it or you haven't, every single choice you've made, ethical choice that you've made, you've been standing on one of the three steps of this ladder. So that's every choice in the past, that's every choice today and every choice into the future. You're standing at one of these three steps and maybe the easiest way to define them if you think about the outcome of your choices is the first step and probably the lowest level moral development in terms of making an ethical choice. The first step is it's about me. In other words, when I make a choice, what I'm gonna try and do here is maximize my reward or minimize the punishment that might be out there. So uh, uh, keeping a $20 bill, you know, getting bad change from somebody and you keep the 20 bucks that you didn't deserve, I can come up with all kinds of way at that first step. It's about me to justify, well, of course I should keep that money. I don't need to take that back to the store. Uh, this is karma. Uh, what goes around comes around. This is finally my time to benefit. Gosh, I'll use that money to do something like pay the rent or feed my family. So I'm helping others with the money that I've kept. There are a number of ways at that, that, that level that you can justify keeping the money. And by the way, there are a number of ways at that level that you can also justify giving back the money that's not yours because it doesn't belong to you to give to the family or to keep yourself. The problem is if I'm standing on that first step, it's about me. I don't always make the consistent ethical choice. I can figure out what times when making the bad choice is better for me. So that's what I'm going to do. That's the first step. It's about me. The second step, it's about some of us. So I go from it's about me, To now an outside circle, but a small circle, the people that I care about, the people that I love, my family, uh, my neighborhood, my uh, church group, my uh, Boy Scout troop, my organization, the people that I work with. It's a larger circle than it's about me, and you're really weighing what's right and what's wrong on the basis of how some of us will benefit in being able to do that, right? So uh, we'll make a profit this year and that's good for everybody. This, by the way, is the step that quite often organizations will stand on to make a poor choice. Let's say uh, Volkswagen uh, making the choice to uh, falsify its exhaust uh, uh, estimates in their car, right? You can do it at that level. It's about some of us because of course, Volkswagen is gonna be greatly accelerated in its profit by continuing to sell a car that actually doesn't match what it is they said it's going to be. And by the way, if we keep fooling people, they're gonna feel great about the environment because they bought a car that's got all these great things to it. Well, at that level, it's about some of us, I can justify bad choices in that regard because I'm only worried about that smaller circle us in the company making a profit, keeping a job. And then there's the third level and this is the highest moral level. So we've gone from it's about me, it's about some of us. At the third highest moral level on that ladder The choice is made, it's about all of us. I can't just think about me or a small group of people, but I've got to think about everyone who might be affected now or in the future about the choice that I'm making.
0: As I said, I spent 30 years in the corporate world before coming to higher education. And this is a question that I still, in my own mind, have not been able to answer. So you can help us out today. Can business leaders and leadership, as you know, it's never been more difficult than today to be a leader can they be 100% ethical and still be profitable?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question and one that we get all the time, especially from the business people. I'm not sure they're that direct about it, but that's what they're trying to find out. (laughs) If we invest in all this training and we get all our people and we spend all this money, what's really going to happen? Are we going to see something? You know, when we started this work almost 25 years ago with companies, organizations, um, we didn't really have many statistical figures to tell them that you know what was going to change inside their companies. But now we do with social responsibility issues and companies taking on much more and more responsibility for whether it's their neighborhood or the rest of the world, they're actually tracking the results of that. And we see uh, every year in a, a, a poll that's done by Gallup and Ethosphere, about the top 100 most ethical companies versus the bottom 100 least ethical companies, oh, what the wow. difference is in some things. So, for instance, between the top 100 most and the bottom 100 least, there's about a 21% increase in uh, profitability in wow. the top 100. It's a huge number. And uh, uh, same thing with uh, uh, productivity. Productivity increases about 22% in the top 100 versus the bottom 100. Uh, a- absenteeism among employees goes down 40% between the top 100 oh and the bottom God. 100 because of course it's a great environment to be in when you're trusting and trusted, you know. So there's actually a whole bunch of evidence that says, you know what, not only is it more profitable to take on ethics and, and a sense of responsibility, not only for the inside and the outside, but also the outside of your organization, um, it's, it's incredibly profitable to actually do that, because in the end, the consumer always wants to trust the organization that's supplying them something, whether it's a service or a product. Don't they want to know that what they're getting is the best thing? And if they know that between one company or other, they're going to be loyal to the company that's saying, this is what we do, and their actions are, are yeah, that's exactly what they did and what I expected to get. So. There's all kinds of research now, stock market investment stuff about the uh, uh, you know pro- profit and, and uh, the different ratios that might might use to try and decide what good stock is to get. There's an incredible difference between the top uh, companies that are making ethics part of their bloodstream in their companies and the bottom 100 that still look at it like it's an expense and we really don't need to do it. Let's cut costs here and label employees off and dot, dot, dot.
0: How revealing that is for our leaders. That really is amazing. Now. Sadly, I think people might agree with this, at least some of the world seems to be going through a particularly rough period right now. We want to be optimistic, naturally, we want to be realistic, but going into 2022, are you, Chris, optimistic? Can things be resolved?
1: Probably the best question of the day here. You know, even though I spend my time in this world, whether it's writing a book and trying to cite some examples of the the heinous decisions that have been made and and the good decisions that have been made over the last number of years, um, I couldn't be more optimistic now about what's going on, believe it or not. There are a lot of blips in the road. um, I'll call them speed bumps in the road um, now. And they seem to be bigger and more, uh, more of them in the way than there used to be. But in the end, if you if you step back and take a look at, at what some of the problems have done for us is there are more people of greater diversity asking more questions in louder voices about things that are very relevant to the way that we work with each other, the way that we operate with each other, the way that we live with each other than there ever has been. It's absolutely fertile ground for these folks to be asking the right choices and The book talks a little bit about paradigm shifts. I won't get technical. Paradigms are really the truths that we use to make sense of the world. Um, But if you look at the paradigm shifts, large ones that have happened throughout time in different civilizations, there are really three stages that happen in a paradigm shift. One of them is that the paradigm is ridiculed. I'll use a simple example, like a a round world thing, right? So originally when there was a great belief in flat world, and I know that that's come back up in the chain of things, but I'm not talking about now, I'm talking about much earlier. This used to be a clearer example, I guess, but you know, in the beginning round world, you gotta be kidding, what a silly thing. Can you believe there are people that actually believe that they're gonna sail their ships off in the distance and go off the edge and what a silly, silly thing. Well, enough people start believing that new paradigm that the world is not flat, that it's really round. And suddenly this becomes a threat to the people who kind of own this paradigm about oh, a flat oh, world. Wow. And they start saying, you know what? We're gonna have to do something about this. We're gonna have to uh, persecute these people. Let's make sure they don't grow in number because their idea is absurd. Their ships are gonna fall off the edge of the world. They're gonna be our ships for our trade and our my economy and my business. So we've gotta stop this somehow because there are just too many of these round worlders out there. And then the third, the third stage is the most interesting. Almost a mass acceptance where people realize, well, that's right. This is exactly right. It is a round world. There have been enough shifts out there. They've come back. And, you know, I kind of always believed that it was a round world, too. I just sort of said it was flat for a long time. But, you know, so they sort of take it on as though there was never a struggle between the round world and the flat world as well. I think this is exactly what's happening now we're struggling with this idea of what democracy really means, for instance. And part of that struggle are the people that I think understand that there's a long-term consequence of what it means to trust one another and what it means to use facts to make choices. And then there's another group that's saying, no, this is more about my passion and the things that I understand and the stuff that I need um, and I think we all should need. Um, And that's a clash that I think happens as we're seeing this paradigm of ours begin to reach the point where it's actually gonna shift. So that's always the muddiest, messiest time, and especially in a society, is where we reach that fulcrum where it's just about to make a shift. Now, I don't mean it may happen tomorrow, but I'm very optimistic because you can see that's exactly what's happening the mud and the muck and the mire of winter is about to give way to the flowers of spring. In fact, all that muck and mire is going to be the fertilizer that those flowers wind up using to create a very different existence than I think we've seen before. So I'm very optimistic.
0: That's a beautiful Franciscan landscape that you present for, us. so thank you for that. We've saved the most important question we feel for last. How can our loyal listeners best follow you, Chris? And from where can they best purchase this great book,
1: The Noble Edge? Uh, That is the great question. (laughs) So I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, you're able to get the book at uh, any of the online bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, uh, Books a Million, uh, and and any of those places. Also, your local uh, brick and mortar stores. I'm definitely a fan of trying to support uh, the local stores as well. So all those will make it available. Um, You can follow us at nobleedgeconsulting.com. Uh, We've got blogs, we've got uh, movies from some of the uh, speeches that I've given over time. Um, So please feel free to go on that. And that's one word, by the way, it's, you know, www.nobleedgeconsulting. So there's two E's in the middle from the noble and from the edge, nobleedgeconsulting.com. And so you can follow us. You can also get a a signed copy of the book if you leave me a message and I'll be glad to do that.
0: Uh, Terrific listeners, no excuse. Let's make 2022 a different year. Let's make it the greatest year for all of us. And if we're going to do that, our choices, yours and mine, need to be better thought out. We need to make more noble choices. Pick up a copy of this book, pick up a second copy for a friend, someone that you love and share it with them as well. We need to make the world, the workplace, a much better place, certainly. Dr. Christopher Gilbert, we can't thank you enough for enlightening us today. Uh, It's been a great discussion. We've been enlightened, yes, we've been also very much inspired. The importance of really thinking a lot more about our choices and really putting our hearts and soul to doing the right thing. So again, many, many thanks. Continued success with all your great work.
1: Well, thank you, Gregory. Again, I really appreciate it. Ah, the
0: pleasure. It's been ours. Listeners, sadly, once again, guess what? We're out of time. Brother Greg saying our hope and prayer is that when you wake up on Monday morning, just like Chris Gilbert does, you'll say, thank God for Monday. See you next week for another episode of Thank God for Monday. And until then.